Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, January the 12th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Uh, Jack Horgan-Jones and Jennifer Bray are here. Hello to you both. Can I still say Happy New Year? Happy New Just Year. Just yeah. Okay. Go for it. Say Happy it. New Year to you both. Happy New Year to you. Later on in this agenda, we're going to be discussing whether the government has started to give in to local protests and to political pressure over accommodation for refugees. We'll also be discussing the related issue of the ongoing homelessness crisis, which is so obvious on our streets at the moment. Uh, we're also going to touch on... What will probably be a recurring motif over the course of this year. I mean, Irish politics, which is the big jobs in Europe, question mark, question. And we're also going to be selecting our favourite articles of the week, as we do in this Friday wrap every week. But first, uh, Jen, the the referendums on women in the home, on carers and on the definition of the family, uh, they're still two months away. But I think we saw the first shots fired this week on the uh, opinion page of the Irish Times. Yeah, so we know that we have um, this referendum coming up. It's actually two referendums on March the 8th, International Women's Day. um, And it's proposing effectively four changes. Um, One of them, obviously, is to remove the reference to the woman's place being in the home. uh, And another is in relation to uh, the definition of family um, and and marriage being the basis upon that. Um, And then... Also, there is the insertion of another article, which is about care, um, which I know you've talked about on a previous podcast. So in the last couple of days, we've seen two kind of very posing pieces in the paper. One was from Michael McJewell, and he was basically saying that, I mean, he was actually advocating for a no vote. I mean, that was the, that was the crux of his piece. You know, he was kind of saying that this, um, you know, this idea that it w- frames our lives, this women in the home reference, that it frames our lives and, and our values and our society and, and changing it would would change that. He dis- he disagrees with that, basically. Um, I think Orla O'Connor of the National Women's Council, she had a, a different take. She was saying that, you know, basically this is, it might not make the world biggest difference, is what she was saying. Um, you know, it might not change anything theoretically on the ground. But she was like, it is a stepping stone along the way to a, a bigger goal. And that it has symbolic value, which yeah. which is also has a value to some extent. Yeah. There's, yeah, and there were a couple of things in the but both I was surprised at how strongly Michael McDougall came out, came out against it, Jack, whether one agrees or disagrees with him. He had seemed to have some fairly mm. cogent argument about specifics in the wording and, 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 and what they might mean. And the other one is that the National Women's Council, which is one of the, the NGOs which the Minister Roderick O'Gorman was referring to last week when he was essentially telling them to book up and get out mm. and start uh, um, start canvassing for this, which I, I thought was was, which was is interesting. Kind of, yeah, it's kind of one of the one of the problems I think, yeah. that when they when they did the big reveal in uh, early December and described the wording of the of the questions that would be put in the referendum, um, there was a fairly lukewarm reception from the civil society groups and there was a kind of open question over the degree to which they would get behind the effort. Or now, if they would at all. If they would at all. Now, mm. like, it, I, I don't think it's realistic and it has come to pass and Oral O'Connor made clear in that piece that Jen referenced uh, earlier on this month that, you know, 
the National Women's Council and other groups will be campaigning for a yes vote. But it's it's the it's the meter of that campaign. It's the it's the volume, and I think we've seen in obviously the two big referendums, uh, equal marriage and uh, the repeal of the eighth, that the success or otherwise of a government proposal on a social issue, that's just the broadest umbrella possible, can come down to how good you are or how good the campaign is at mobilizing civil society. The mobilization of civil society in both those referendums was was a massive thing. And I think that because these uh, these referendum questions are esoteric might not be quite correct, but they're less kind of easily graspable in, in an immediate sense. As, as well, they're quite complicated. We don't even quite know. I mean, it took, like, it took Jen so, so, a couple of minutes to just explain what was involved. Yeah, so, some you know? parts of them are fairly well, easy to understand. Like and that was me being as brief as I could be. Yeah. Mm. Hope I didn't get anything wrong. Removing, removing the language around a women's place in the home, I think, is, is fairly easy to understand. But other things aren't quite so straightforward. Um, and then there's stuff that's not there as well. So, like... Part of the reason that the NGOs weren't uh, full-throated in their support of it was because they wanted a wider acknowledgement of, of the, the role of care. Uh, there was a recommendation both from the Citizens' Assembly and from the Oireachtas Committee that something will be done, uh, to that the Constitution will be amended to refer explicitly to gender equality and non-discrimination, something that the government backed away from. They said that effectively that was already provided for in non-discrimination uh, legislation. They, isn't, isn't in, in so doing, they did kind of sidestep the potential for this to become a really nasty kind of culture. They did. They, avoid, they think, avoided yeah. that. And I think yeah, that may have been tactical that would because you would have obviously had people asking the question of, you know, what is a gender, you know, all those kind of things. And, and, and that could have overtaken this campaign. So I think they've diminished the chance of that without in, entirely extinguishing it. Sorry, all a very long-winded way of saying that, like, this is a, a, a referendum which probably won't grasp the public imagination. Uh, won't mobilize civil society to the same degree as previous referendums have. And those two core ingredients, when you add it to the ever-present among referendums, which is that they can be just rejected because it's a chance to kick the government, make it, uh, you know, make it something that's not, well, also it's, the, it's, the, it's not a gimme. The argument know? can be made when you're confronted with any amendment to the Constitution, which is that if I'm not absolutely clear what it means and in favour of it, well then, if in doubt, vote no. Yeah. And I think that's going to be quite a lot of the of, of the no campaign, isn't it? Isn't it because mm. the objections come from several different quarters? They come from both left and right. You know, Orlo O'Connor's article yeah. was a vote yes article, but it was pretty lukewarm. And there'll be other people on the left who'll say it's just this is just not good enough at all. And then there are criticisms on the right, and then there are sort of philosophical questions about should you, no matter what the Citizens Assembly recommended, should you actually be putting these things into the constitution and constraining future governments, which should really just enact legislation? And some of the language is a bit loose necessary. as well. And now we're really in the weeds yeah. now, but there's this thing about, about a durable relationship. Well, actually, the yeah. A durable relationship. I mean, but they basically say, they've said, the government has said, like, look, we'll leave it up to the courts. That'll be litigated at some point. But I think that you'll you'll see a lot of the commentary from the no side is, saying, is, like, is, what is, is a durable relationship? And that's where I think you might get some that of the was kind in of Michael culture war stuff. So should you be putting right. words into the constitution that you don't know what they mean when you're putting them in? Well, I mean, you can look at it that way. And I think this is the danger for the government with this referendum like even if you look at the conversation that the three of us are having here about it you know we are getting into the weeds of a little bit because those weeds exist and for them it's kind of wading through them in a way that you can easily explain the changes that you want to make and why when actually it's complicated because they're talking about deleting certain parts of the constitution deleting certain sentences uh, um, adding entire new paragraphs um, article 42 so then I think 
really what it comes down to is can they clearly explain the changes that they want to make right now no like even if you look at Orla O'Connell's art you mentioned her yes she was calling for yes but she was also calling for yes and yes so we have two referendums four changes Um, and even the thing that Jack mentioned this and I think this will be an issue in the next couple of weeks the idea of a durable relationship so just so people for people who are wondering this is the first change the government are proposing. It's Article 41.1. And I won't go through the whole thing, but basically that as in its current status says that the state recognises the family as the natural primary and fundamental unit group of society. And then it goes on. They want to change this to government wants changes. The, the state recognises the family, whether founded on marriage or other durable relationships. So the intent there is to say that relationships are no longer just based on marriage. As we know, you've got low parents, you have sure. all to, different To reflect kinds. reality. To, and that is reality. I think 40% hmm. of births now are outside of marriage. So, I mean, that's only that's only right and fair. But then, you're, then you have this question of durable. What is a durable relationship? And if the government are saying, well, should we leave it to litigation? I don't know whether that would make people think, well, if you're not clear, why should we be? So that's the danger there. Um, and the, the care thing, I think, is still a danger zone. I think, look, the, the, the challenge for them here is to take all this complexity and just distill it down to two or three talking points. That's, yeah. that's, that's the winning of this, you know. Um, don't get into the weeds. Don't don't get into the weeds, yeah. Object lesson. <laughs> the weeds this podcast weeds. so far. The weeds. But is, is, <laughs> the weeds the are very weedy. Really, is the lesson really out of this that I, I think one could have assembled a majority to get rid of the women in the home wording, which I think the majority of people probably do find objectionable and anachronistic and mm. unhelpful, although it hasn't really had any real power in terms of terms of the legislative history, history of the state since it was enacted. Why not just cut it out? And why does the, is the state in the business of faffing well, around being too defining or redefining families well, in the constitution. I mean, they're, they're kind of they're bound by the by the recommendations of the citizens' assembly. Well, they're and, not bound by them. They're not sorry. They're not bound by them. Mm. But like, there's a degree to which they can't just ignore them and say, "We're taking ten percent of what you've recommended and just having a referendum on that because it's straightforward and we think we can win it." I That's think a- it's their own fault. They're different. But previous governments, because they had too many processes involved in talking about this. Yes. So even in Orla, Orla O'Connor's piece, she talks about the Constitutional Convention in 2013, the Citizens' Assembly in 2021, the Oireachtas Committee on Gender Equality in 2023, and they all had their recommendations. And the government then has this huge amount of recommendations and if they just went for the women in the home, would they be accused of ignoring carers? Yes, yeah, they're they're kind of they're kind of weighed down by the Past. the architecture that this government and recent governments have mm. put around referendums and mm. forming constitutional And we've heard questions. so much about how great these structures exactly, are. Exactly, yeah. And and we're going to export them to the rest of the well, world. Maybe they're not so always great. It'll, it'll be like, it'll be yeah. like the, the smoking ban. We're going to export <laughs> You're looking at me because I've said that a million times in this podcast. I'm going cold on them. I'm going cold. <laughs> but, 2024. Well, there is a point. The, the, this, this criticism, for example, that, that the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly weren't taken on board wholesale yeah. by the government. I mean... Parliament is sovereign and it elects the government and it's elected by the people and it's the decision of the government as it to what is, to do. It is, and, and as you correctly said, they're not bound by them in any sense, mm. but like they do make a political commitment. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent undertaking to be mindful of them if you set up the Citizens' Assembly mm. and if you use the, the, the machinery of the Oireachtas and set up a, a committee to, to look at this. You know, you can't, you're not legally bound to be, you can't ignore it. So I think they, they're becoming a little bit freighted by the, the architecture they've set up. And you see this in the housing uh, referendum as well, you know, the idea of, of putting a right to housing into the constitution, yeah. which is, is just not going to happen, I don't think, in the lifetime of this government. They, they kicked that off to the Housing Commission it's fallen apart. They can't decide on the wording. There's a minority report. Like, it, it's basically lost to the four winds, you know. So, like, I wonder, while we're patting ourselves on the back for setting up these kind of quite elaborate systems for arriving at 
a good version of a wording that can be put to the people. Um, or maybe a rather, high, high, maybe a rather high, highfalutin version, which kind of crumbles in when it comes into, into contact with pragmatic realities of political life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> speaking of shortest answer on the podcast. Speaking yes. of pragmatic realities of political life, an ongoing and really rather depressing one is the is the the range of protests and other incidents which you've seen around the country, particularly in in recent weeks since since December, uh, including uh, buildings being burnt down in response to the impending arrival of uh, of asylum seekers, people applying for international protection in places around the country, and there have been further developments on that this week. Jack, we mm. had a, um, a, an incident down in Ballinrobe, uh, something I think last night in, in Ross Grey yeah. in, in, in Tipperary. The one in Ballinrobe in particular, some people have expressed concern about it, including our columnist Justine McCarthy in today's newspaper. Well, there was, there was newspaper. two, really. There's, there's Ballinrobe and then there was Carlo Town, where yeah. the intention was to put in single male international protection applicants, so male asylum seekers, uh, as most people would, would understand them in a jargon-free world. And... Um, and the government or the department did a U-turn. They say it's not a U-turn, but uh, they did a U-turn. They said we'll put families in instead, families uh, families of asylum seekers. And certainly in the case of Balnrobe, um, they, the, the, the protests just kind of melted away arising from that. I think there's probably, certainly as of yesterday, there was still some protests going on in Carlo. So people who still object to this idea of, um, of anyone basically been put in there. And then last night, uh, last night being Thursday night, uh, it emerged that there was a plan to put 160 uh, asylum seekers' families again into a hotel in Ross Grey. Very quickly, a protest was mobilised, a couple of hundred people, according to reports this morning. Um, and you have this kind of mishmash of factors and theories as to what's underpinning these protests. Is it all bad actors and the far right? Is the far right a very minor role and is it genuine concerns uh, held by by locals or is it some kind of combination of the two that is actually in flux and and probably varies from, from side to side? I think the last explanation, the last explanation the closest, is, is, is what yeah. I believe it is. Um, the, the, the net effect of all this is really that um, I think they may be running out of road on what can only loosely be called a policy. And Simon Harris was making this point yesterday at, at a doorstep and I thought it was interesting. He was basically saying... It is not government policy to push asylum seekers and Ukrainians into every disused building on a main street. It's a response to a humanitarian crisis. Uh, and that's a good point because no one would decide to design a policy like this. Mm. Um, where what, what is missing is the actual policy bit, the really thought out bit, because they're just they're caught on this emergency. All the time, they're caught they? in this emergency yeah. hamster wheel. And now they're they 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 have a total perfect storm where they don't have a long-term response ready. They are running out of road in terms of acceptability in communities. And, you know, there's dynamic reasons for that. And the role of the far right should not be diminished in any way, shape or form. And they're running out of room for people. So you're looking at increasing numbers of people sleeping rough. So, like, this is, this is it's a tinderbox and it's a, it's, a, it's a failure and an absence of policy. And I think it's going to be one of the things for this and year. And the sense is that it's accelerating, John. There's more yeah. of these things happening all the time and the, the gaps between incidents seem to be getting shorter all the time. Well, I can give you a good example of that, Hugh. Um, I was looking for a story yesterday on, I used the e-paper and I was looking for a story um, and I just looked at the, I realised something about the front pages of all our papers since the start of the year. The very first day of 2024, 
with a story about how Gardaí were suspecting arson. Um, in the case of a fire at a pub in Ringsend and it was gutted, there were rumours, false rumours that went around that it was due to accommodate asylum seekers. It was actually for homeless accommodation. On the second front page of the year, we had a story about how the plan to remove direct provision was out of the water, basically, because of the influx of refugees and asylum seekers and that the state wants to ramp up building state-built accommodation uh, on the third front page of the year, there was a row about consultation process for people being moved in. By the end of that week, uh, we're talking about Garda patrols for asylum seekers. Then there was the death of a homeless man, who I know we don't know um, exactly what circumstances there are. And then we had, right after that, migrants found in a container um, coming from Rossler. I think there were Kurds and Vietnamese. And now today we have Ross Cray. I mean... And we've had six fires, I think, in the last couple of weeks. Like, that's extraordinary. It's only the 12th of January. Mm. Is there another element to this as well as the fact that, you know, the, the state, as you say, is on is is on this hamster wheel, which is that it's moving into the political mainstream in a way perhaps that it wasn't uh, a year ago, Jack. And maybe that's to do with the fact that we do have local elections coming down the mm. track and other elections coming because we did see, you know, opposition being more vocally expressed first by, you know, independent politicians, councillors and, and, and TDs and then by politicians from the main parties. So I just wonder, is it becoming part of what you might call mainstream politics in a way that it hasn't yeah, been. Yeah, I think it's before. forcing forcing its way into mainstream politics. And I think that it's actually quite instructive to listen to the to the interviews, the broadcast interviews that are done with the, the local reps, the, the councillors, maybe the TDs as well, um, wherever these protests emerge, because the government parties and the representatives of the government parties are either edging themselves into a smaller and smaller space trying to defend the policy or just stating... I have no problem with this in principle, and then going on to criticise the policy at length. So it's a real problem, I think, for the parties of government, maybe not so much the Greens, but certainly for the two big parties who have large uh, contingents of councillors up and down the country who are coming under huge pressure on this issue and will be asked about it, not just when uh, on national broadcast or in national media when um, protests erupt, but just generally, I think, on the campaign trail, you know. Um, we saw before Christmas two Fianna Fáil councillors going offside on this and they referred to the to the disciplinary mechanisms within the party. I mean, how many times are you going to do that? Like, people, I think, are going to go offside on this. It's a really big issue for the government parties and how are they going to handle it? How are they, and are they going to adjust national policy on this? It's just... It, it's it's incredibly tricky for them, and it's only you know it's only three or four months away that all these councillors and people who want to be councillors are going to be out on the doorsteps looking yeah. for votes. Difficult to discipline that large group this. of candidates. Yeah, yeah, and I think Sinn Fein um, probably Sinn Fein, have sorry, they have said to their local or you know grassroots basically don't take any line that is different to that of Mary Lou Macdonald. But I think Mary Lou Macdonald's line is changing. Shifting, definitely. Yeah, definitely. In what way is it shifted? <clears throat> well, um, excuse me. I'll give you an example of an interview she did with the Business Post. Um, very recently and she said if you're a person who can't get a home or your son or daughter can't get housed and then you reckon that lots more people are coming to the country naturally enough you're going to say well how am I going to be housed now she did go on to say but that anger is on the government but like to me that is very much validating an argument often used by the far right which is these are people coming over taking our housing you know all Ireland is of, full Ireland is full and I and, and that's the that's the hashtag on Twitter we've talked about that and I think um Politico had a really interesting piece um, up in the last couple of days where they're talking about how Sinn Féin will have this tightrope to walk. So there's the, lo- the, no- the local element that you talk about, which is the elections are coming mm. up. And I think these will be the most interesting local elections in at least a decade because of this issue. Um, 
and it will say something about the general election as well. And for Sinn Féin now, this is like a crucial 12-month period. And we can see those comments from Mary Lou Macdonald kind of shifting ever so slightly. Um, and whether they can toe that delicate line of not, I suppose, inciting issues while also appealing to their base, which is splintering off potentially to kind of an, what used to be an empty right. So are you suggesting a little bit of dog whistling is going to be required for I think we're going to, I actually think we're going to be shocked this year coming up by the dog whistling we see across the doll. And when we get into covering the, the local elections properly, which I'm really excited to do and go out and canvas, um, you, know, I love, you know, I'm such a nerd. You know I love going out in the canvas. <laughs> like, this is the question that we'll be asking. And I think we're going to learn something alarming. So something that's related to all that, Jack, is homelessness and people on the streets with, with nowhere to go, particularly when it's cold, as it has been, as you to get very cold again, I think, over the yeah. next few days. We had a, there was, there was a, a homeless man died on the street in the centre of Dublin uh, a, couple, a couple of days ago. Um, these kind of stories, are, they're horrible, they're tragic, obviously. I, I always wonder how much effect do they have on the body politic. Most people aren't out in the street. They are, do people, how distressed do people get by, by what's happening to, to people who are sleeping rough during the winter? Does it have an effect on the way people think about the government? Well, it's interesting. So I wrote a story this week about um, some of the homeless NGOs uh, giving out about a, a mooted policy change, which would make it harder to access emergency accommodation in some instances. And um, within their responses to the government, they were pointing out and very clearly using language and saying the political impact of this is something you should not underestimate. Irish people don't have a high threshold. I'm paraphrasing, but more or less is exactly what they're saying. Uh, Irish people don't have a high threshold for ill health and death on the streets. And I think that that has at times been proven to be true. I mean, people remember the death of Jonathan Curry um, outside the Dáil in, at the end of 2014. And I think that that was... It was, it was a bit of a point of new departure in how people thought about housing and homelessness and, you know, the, the centrality that, you know, was attached to that in the kind of political discourse. And, and I, was looking, I was actually looking back at the, the numbers of people accessing emergency accommodation at that time, December of, of 2014. It was uh, just under 3,000. And we know now it's like it's well over... 12, 12, 13,000, 4,000 mm. children, you know. So, I mean, that, that that problem has exploded from then. Then, you know, there have been other instances as well where something terrible happening to, to a rough sleeper has has punctured at a particularly politically volatile time into the news agenda. That man who was on the canal, sleeping on the canal, and was taken up by the digger. Um, and that was during a general election campaign and uh, was in the shadow of of a of a election poster for the then housing minister Owen Murphy, and that was a very powerful image for people. So I think that the the NGOs are right when they're kind of making this point that like it's not necessary that every homeless death, and I don't think you know unfortunately this this tragic incident will you know have that much of a political impact, but it's not like every single one will. But there's always the potential for something to kind of light the blue touch paper on the conversation around homelessness, deprivation, and um, emergency accommodation, rough sleeping, and just then that is the housing crisis. That's yeah, the it, kind it, of, it, it, because it's such a powerful visual symbol, it's such a powerful I, I, I don't mean to underplay the fact also, these are human beings involved, it, it, but it's, it's in your the, face. You know? it, it, it's, yeah. the, it's the diary item that, yeah. that, that bled Owen Murphy out was the homeless figures out last Friday of every month. It hasn't replicated itself for whatever reason. For Dara Bryan, it's not have been quite as damaging for him, but it's still every month, every month going up. When are they going to go down? When are they going to go down? Will he resign, Minister? Will he resign? It's just this drumbeat and it's constant. And the, the, the more people you have rough sleeping, 
the NGOs are right. The more incidents of ill health and death you're going to have. And I do think that there is a low enough threshold for the idea that people die on the streets from exposure or other reasons. And that can be traced back fundamentally to, to, to the housing crisis. Jen mentioned the e-paper um, and gives me the opportunity to sing the praises of the e-paper if you're not a subscriber to the Irish Times. Uh, I'm very partial to digital journalism and to websites and to the apps that we run and all those kinds of things, but there's still something about the design presentation that derives from the printed page, which to my mind at least is, is still superior to it. So I use the e-paper all the time and the iPad. It works works really well uh, for me and you can certainly get it as one of our digital subscription packages available on irishtimes.com. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. Jobs in Europe, Jen. This jobs in Europe is a kind of story that that, that that keeps on giving. I always wondered, do real human beings care about politicians and their big jobs in Europe? Ah, uh, <laughs> listen, I just wrote 1,300 words on this for tomorrow's paper. <laughs> well, well, so the answer is yes. So the answer is no. <laughs> it's just still a quiet week in January. Which particular big job in Europe are we talking about now? So Charles Michel, um, in a surprise announcement last weekend, said that he wants to run in the uh, European elections in June. Um, and if he gains a seat, which he's widely expected to, uh, that would obviously mean him stepping down as European Council president. Now, I actually thought before writing this piece, perhaps it shows my lack of full knowledge about the role of the European Council president, that it was kind of a figurehead role. It's actually a quite important role. You have to bring all the heads of state together. You set the agenda. You organise the work schedule. Sometimes you have to kind of broker very sensitive deals and um, I suppose negotiations between different European leaders. Right. Who so might you're not just sending heads. out the teams meeting no- no. notifications and things like that. No, no it's, it's actually quite a powerful role. And, you know, the European Council, I think, is if it not the most, one of the most powerful bodies in the mm. European Union. So and Charles it is Michel, a, big job. a former Belgian Prime Minister, yes. so returning essentially to to Belgian politics or European. Yeah, which is Belgian interesting politics. that decision in and of itself because it raised a, a big conversation about whether he thought the job was important or not, and, and whether other people thought that maybe he wasn't good enough. That's a whole other. I conversation. have to say, he hasn't impacted that much on no. my consciousness over the course of his term, Jack. Yeah, I mean, there was the time he, he, he didn't give a seat up for... That's the only time yeah. I really <laughs> noticed him, actually, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Well, he didn't give a seat up for Ursula von der Leyen when they were meeting with the Turkish president, I think, So does that say something yeah. about him or does it say something about the job? It says something about women in politics, quite frankly. <laughs> but, I mean, just, but just, does that job kind of generally feature in, in the popular imagination? That's what I mean. I, I, like us? Yeah. Like, I mean, well, maybe not. But either ways, you know, the, he announced the decision and Naomi O'Leary then had a piece where she was saying that two names that had emerged as possible contenders were Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin. Both of them, I think, within days came out and said... I don't see that arising and I plan to lead, you know, my party into the next general it's election. non-denial denial, you know. But it was, it was, it was like a 90% denial. It was yeah. more than the Michael McGrath denial about the um, European Commission job, which is, <laughs> who knows? What I wouldn't future, hate it. I wouldn't hate it. <laughs> who knows what the future may hold? Um, well, hold on a sec. I mean, if any, as I, if as, if as I understand it, Michelle's early departure means mm-hmm. that they need to get moving on this a little bit earlier than they would normally have. The, well, actually. The, the smokeless, smoke-filled rooms will already be in action over the next few months, yeah? What could have happened previously was that there could have been a caretaker put in place, but there's a, there's an added element, basically, that Viktor Orban and Hungarian... Um, cue the, cue the, cue the body organ music. Yeah. He, so basically, he technically would take up that role in mid-July because it would automatically go to the EU, European country that holds the rotating presidency okay. and Hungary is taking that up in the middle of the year. And so nobody I think there's, wants that. 
Well, look, I mean, he's a European antagonist and he's, you know, the closest ally to Vladimir Putin in the European Union. So, no, I don't think anybody wants that. Um, so, basically, there's an added pressure. So, that's why the shortlist, everyone's talking in a much quicker fashion about but if that who should is, be on it. if that is the um, uh, timescale and if, mm. as we are led to believe, it's, mo- I know we've talked about this a little bit, but it's pretty unlikely there's going to be a general election in Ireland before the summer. Mm. You're talking about one or other of the leaders of the two main government parties jumping ship weeks or months before the actual election? So this is what I thought. And when um, I was commissioned to do this piece, I thought it's going to be so speculative and, you know, no offence to the news desk. Uh, yeah, but it is Simon's <laughs> listening. It was a great idea. No. Um, so basically, that I thought that. I thought neither of them would jump ship. Um, yeah. I started digging around, though, and talking to people in their camps. And it wasn't actually... I have a piece in, piece in tomorrow, which nobody will read, like I said. Uh, but basically, it wasn't... What I was told was if it was an actual serious possibility... And they were approached in any meaningful way that their name was genuinely on a shortlist, they'd have to consider it. Two people in both camps said that. They'd have to genuinely consider such a job. And I was really surprised because I thought they were going to say, well, you know, look at the comments they've made. Like, obviously not. Um, I think it's really unlikely. Firstly, I think there's a whole load of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes that it's makes... It's a complete it. black box, this process, isn't it? Is that, yeah, I yeah. tried to... Do you know what? Actually, some of it was too complicated to write about, honestly. I just was like, there's just no point. I'm going to lose every single... Three this is about the internal it. machinations and of your the European People's Party. And so. my will to live. But it, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing that goes on behind the scenes. And yeah. long story short, it's very unlikely that it will come to either of them. But if it did, it would be so interesting because they would both genuinely consider it. And there's a view that the path to the European Council presidency is much clearer for Micheál Martin than it is for Leo Varadkar. Why so? It's basically the European Commission presidency It's expected that Ursula von der Leyen will take up second term, the European People's Party, that that some that would tilt the European Council presidency towards a liberal candidate. Um, and then you're into that kind of liberal renew group, um, which Michal yeah. Martin is a, is so a Another thing that wrecks my head about all this is that it's Fianna Fáil are part of the liberal group, which, yes. which doesn't seem like the, the natural home group. to me. But anyway. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and like, I'm not sure anybody's wildly interested on a, a Friday in January about it, but that's the talk in government anyway. Well, the re- I mean, the reason we care really is like the the omnipresent question about who's going to lead the, the two civil war parties, who's going to be the next leader. And this this suggests that there is a... It may be slim, it may be vanishingly slim, but it suggests that that could happen all of a sudden. And then... It, it seems a little it would unlikely be, that Mial Martin would go off to be the president and uh, Michael McGrath would go off to become the commissioner and yeah, Fianna Fáil would sail forward under the joint leadership of Jim O'Callaghan and Derek Cleary or something. Stranger things about, yeah. Look, these, these, these are very attractive jobs for a whole rake of reasons. Um, and, you know, particularly Michal Martin, who is, you know, in the in the, the final-ish acts probably of his career, you won't thank me for saying that, but like, um, you know, this will be a kind of crowning crowning achievement, you know? Um, and it's very difficult for politicians to walk past crowning achievements. One person it? did say to me that Ireland's quite strong position on uh, the war in Gaza uh, might militate against probably presumably either of them, Michael Martin, but uh, and Leo Varadkar. But could given do, that Michael Martin in his role as foreign as foreign it minister, it could do. But I mean, that that, pre, that, that that presupposes that the the European position uh, or the von der Leyen position, let's call it, is is a constant, and that countries won't kind of drift more towards the the quote unquote Irish position or that kind of caucus of countries that Irish is that that, that Ireland finds itself in on the issue: Portugal, Spain, uh, Belgium. You know, and I, I suspect that the longer it goes on, the more people will drift towards, you know, ceasefire, lasting ceasefire. Um, yeah, yeah things could change very much by the time you get towards June or July. 
June or July where they w- will have selected the candidate, basically. But that's all theoretical. Like there is one absolute certainty this year about a move to Europe, and that's the commissioner. Uh, role and we know it's a Fianna Fáil nominee even though well, Leo, he, yeah he made some strange <laughs> comments over Christmas this, this reminds me of the finance minister do you remember, do you remember last year oh yeah uh, 2022 now 2022 and, yeah and um, during the summer uh, Leo Varadkar made a kind of series of strange sally forths on you know wouldn't necessarily see the finance ministry going across the Fianna Fáil <laughs> um, and I was never quite clear on, on where it was explicitly you know, reference that it works. I don't think it's in the program for government. It's an unwritten it's agreement, like, yeah. or was it like and the same some, some written secret annex? Yeah. It, it, it was clearly agreed. But it was clearly it was agreed. Very much yeah. agreed. Yeah, and then and 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 it became a kind of you know category three shitstorm within within government. Um, and this is this is similar, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, very. I mean, it's it basically a, said, "Sure, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it." He will and cross the bridge, but but no, Michal Martin is absolutely firm and clear. I love saying, the way you're doing that. I'm doing the Michal Martin hand. Yeah, we, we need, <laughs> <laughs> fundamentally, um, we need uh, fundamentally we need cameras in the studio. Um, we do. No, we, we do. do not. But he he's absolutely firm on it. Um, yeah. You know, so so both yeah. those things can't be true at the same time. Yes, Michael McGrath. I did an interview with him over Christmas. And I was trying to think of the way to ask him the question where he couldn't evade it. You know, you're trying to figure out the right combination <laughs> of words. And I was like, if you were offered the job, would you take it? And he was like, um, who knows what the future holds? Okay. Listen, I'll ask something this because yeah. I got to, we, had, we had a special on elections actually only, only the other day in this podcast, but I'm going to be doing this all year. What's the betting now on when the election's going to happen? I was looking across the water. Rishi Sunak has more or less just said their one's going to be on November the 14th. Can we not do something like that? Here? Ours will be at the end of November. I'm putting it down here now. End of November? Yeah, they're going to get the budget, they're going to do the budget early, they're going to do it in September. Um, don't ever play this series back to me. Do it in September <laughs> and then they will get through the finance bill earlier than expected in October and we'll have an election in November. So a US presidential election on the 5th, UK mm. election on the 14th, Irish election two weeks after that. There'll be so much There'll to distract need people. need to it's order perfect. special drugs to get us through that month, Jack? Yeah, yeah. More, perhaps more than just the caffeine pills you referenced in the in the podcast the, in this during the week. Uh, yeah, I think I think the the odds are, are narrowing on, on October, uh, November. Um, the one right to that is that they, they tend to get the timing wrong on these things. Um, mm. And I can't remember the last time a government went early of its own volition. Now, you can make an argument that three or four months isn't actually that early, all, 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 all told. But there's always the capacity just to kind of to blink, to bottle it, to get it wrong, to get the call wrong. The did it in 2019, should have gone earlier. Have Fine Gael ever called an election at the right this time. This is the exact point someone made to me, you know. So, um, look, all the, the the sensible option would seem to suggest uh, this this autumn. Um, but it, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be ignored either that two of the three coalition leaders have said they want to go full term on this. I well. think you know, I think Michal Martin is very much we're going all the way, and Eamon Ryan for obvious reasons wants to. Eamon Ryan wants to get as much green stuff. Y- yeah, done he's before like pack as much green in before the green goes the away again. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that means it's a real prospect of it being March 2025, isn't it? Mm-mm. It's in. It's Leo Varadkar's the Taoiseach's gift. Now, you, you would think he'd get the say-so of his coalition partners, especially if he wants to form another government with them. Like, that's really important, that trust. No surprise element. But I don't know. <laughs> well, none of us know. Let's be <laughs> honest about it. We'll have a look around at what articles took our fancy this week. Uh, Jackie, we're reading a sports piece. Yes, Dennis Walsh's piece on Chris Hewton. Really good piece. Um Chris Hewton uh, was the first black player to play for Ireland and has had uh, probably 
the most successful career managerial career of any Irish. Certainly one of them. He's managed Certainly at least two, if not three, yeah, premiership yeah, teams gotten, and a number like, of other ones. Gotten teams promoted. Like he was a manager of Newcastle for a long time. He was assistant manager of Tottenham Hotspur for a long time. Hmm. And I suppose the um, the the piece that uh, that Dennis Walsh wrote is kind of you know why why isn't this guy being mentioned more frequently for the Irish manager's job um, and. You know, just making the point as well. It just it, it delves into some interesting areas around about how, the history uh, of racism in, in, uh, in British like, and, and and Irish football and just too, kind of blackness know? in yeah. sport and stuff. Yeah. And he's making the point, and and he was he was elaborating on something that that Chris Hutton said himself that like black players were always seen as like you know pacey and athletic, and. Yeah. Dennis Walsh makes the point that, you know, this was something that was seen in American American football where the quarterback, you know, there's no such thing as good good black quarterback, you know, and the, the suggestion being that, like, you know, you couldn't be black and, and, a, and a tactical thinker. And mm. this is something that you'd, I think there's actually been studies done on this um, of sports media that when they discuss black athletes, they're more likely to use, you know, t- t- like terms like that almost... But their physical attributes. Yeah, 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 this guy's yeah. a beast, you know, whereas like... Yeah white players are more likely to be described as like thinkers of the game. And there are still very few black managers, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, exactly. Very few black, black managers. Players. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. should, he, should he be the next Ireland manager? He's currently the Ghana manager, which is interesting because Ghana is, is the, the country of his, uh, I'll get this wrong, I think it's his father's birth. His mother's born in Ireland. He was born in the UK. Um, should he be the next Ireland manager? I don't know. I think we certainly would do a hell of a lot, or, a lot worse than we have done in, in the past. Um, but it's just, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a great, great piece of sports writing. Uh, not the first time I've said this on this podcast about, yeah. about something in the sports pages, but uh, I heartily recommend it. Uh, my choice is uh, first outing this week from uh, from Keith Duggan, who is our new Washington correspondent. I think it's great that anybody who knows Keith's writing over the years, much of it on sport, actually, for many years. And then as a really good features writer, and I think he won the Arts Critic of the Year at the Journalism Awards last year. So he definitely doesn't have anything to prove with his writing spurs, but it's great to have him in America. And he's there in Des Moines, this week, while uh, with his snow boots on, Des Moines sounds a bit bleak, actually, doesn't it? You know, it's kind of knee high and slush and snow, and nobody in the centre of the town or anything. But he went along to watch a, a, a Trump event, and he talked to a few supporters as well. And it's a, it's a start of this process. I think the first, I think the caucuses take place next Monday. There doesn't seem to be very much doubt about who's going to win them, but there is a relatively intriguing uh, fight for second place. Winner takes all for second place, at least between. Uh, between Nikki Haley and 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 Ron DeSantis, so we keep an eye on that, and I'm sure we'll be we'll be talking to Keith over the course of the year. There's, there's a great subgenre in, in political journalism here, but all, but more in America's campaign trail. Writing, oh God, yeah, you know, fear, yeah. fear and loathing on the campaign trail, yeah. stuff like that. Like so, yeah. Although the kind of the. The sort of the energy seems to have been taken out of the early parts of the primary campaign, partly by the fact that there isn't a democratic contest, mm. uh, certainly at the moment, anyway, and also yeah. that the Democrats had pulled out of Iowa anyway after having a complete disaster the last time out when their caucuses kind of fell apart. And I don't think they got a result out of the bloody thing for about six, six or seven or six or seven weeks. Um, Jennifer, you were, you've been talking about, uh, and we now have to pro- know how to pronounce his name, Barry Kyogan. Barry Kyogan, you pronounce he Kyogan. pronounces the G, so we'll pronounce the G too. Um, In the news this week, he's nominated for a Golden Globe. Nominated for a Golden Globe, and he was at the Golden Globes. And it was look, it's a bit of light relief, I suppose, at this time of year when people tend to find mid-January very bleak. Have you seen Saltburn? Was it really light relief? 
Uh, no, okay, I saw <laughs> Salt Burn. Like I saw Salt cool. Burn over Christmas. Thank God I just watched it with my sister, not like the rest of my family. Um, but yeah, he, in, I saw it with my kids. Oh, oh my God. No. Imagine what they're saying. Mm. I saw it with my dad. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. We were, all, we were all equally embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> did anyone leave the room at any point? <laughs> no, no, we just looked. Was, looked did you have looked down at our shoes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like, anyway, the, the, the Emer McLeisett is, is yeah. writing about, about Barry Gilligan, yeah. who she had, a, she had an encounter with 10 years ago. She, she did, yeah. She was saying that he was the talk of the festive season and he he really was for a, a variety of different reasons in that film. Won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but don't watch it with your parents um, or anybody you get embarrassed around. But she was also talking about um, different meetings she had with him once when he was just fresh out of love, hate, fame. She kept calling him the cat killer, and um, <laughs> which is fair. And then the second time she met him, I think he was a bit more well known. And she said, oh, sorry for the last time I kept calling you a cat killer. And he was took it really well and... Is a really you seem to come across really well. And actually, I met him before. A friend of mine was on the Late Late Show, and I went to the green room. And then afterwards, we all went. We decamped to a pub down in Paul's Bridge. Tuberty was there, and your man from Alan Partridge was there, and Barry Keoghan was there. This is, this Steve is all very, this is a very glamorous. Steve life. Coogan, Steve, Steve Coogan, Coogan, Barry yeah. Keoghan. You can't just call Ryan him Tuberty your man you. from Alan Partridge. Sorry, I'm not a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to all the fans, which are many. I Barry Keoghan, your man from Love Hate. If my husband hears this now, he's going to be ashamed of me. But um, yeah, so uh, basically I ended up sitting in the corner with him and drinking pints. He was the soundest person in the room. He sat up on the ledge and just had a pint and was just like, yeah, so... Like, and you could just talk to him about absolutely anything. The rest of the lads were sound as well. But yeah, he's, he's actually a, genuinely a, really nice That's a chap. top notch. That's a top notch story. That's a good name yeah. drop, all right. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty good. Oh, it's several name drops, actually. The name drops were so that frequent that you didn't even need to just use Steve Coogan's name. Yeah, you get an insight you know. into is it. Every, is everyone going to have a Barry Keoghan story soon enough? It's like Bono, the way everyone, everyone I, don't, I don't have one, but. Yeah, I've, no, I've, everyone, I've never I've never. Everyone in Dublin has a Bono story. So I want you to put so. that both top of your 2024 resolutions. Okay. Get a Barry story. Okay, with that insight into the exciting social life that Jennifer leads, if, 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 the, if the rest of us don't, uh, we, we will leave it there for today. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back to you very soon indeed after the weekend, but until then, Have a great weekend.